Hey folks, and welcome back to the show. Before talking about a slew of depressing developments going on in Ohio, let me start by telling you that last week on March 31st, we celebrated the International Transgender Day of Visibility, a day when trans folks and allies celebrate transgender people around the world. And just last week as well, at the medical school I teach at, we took some time to make sure that our students, Ohio's future physicians in many cases, are trained to understand the particular needs of LGBTQ patients. The goal of this teaching and learning is to ensure that the next generation of physicians is prepared to address disparities and start to reverse the stigma and neglect these patients have experienced for decades. These are all good developments. And yet, Ohio, like many states, also stands at a crossroads. Not only do LGBTQ Ohioans still experience sometimes serious health disparities, but instead of doing something positive about it or figuring out how to better care for people, the Republican majority in the state legislature is proposing a wave of counterproductive and hateful bills. If passed, these bills stand to not only undo progress we've made in the area of LGBTQ health, but to actively undermine efforts by clinicians and public health professionals to get these Ohioans the care they need. So, on today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Maria Bruno, who heads up Equality Ohio's policy team. While our topic is the LGBT community as a whole, we spend most of our time together discussing the wave of anti-trans legislation being considered at the Statehouse. As you'll hear, in something I think is a sign of the times, there are far too many bills to discuss in one episode, so we focus on a few key bills, as well as advocacy initiatives that Equality Ohio is involved with. For those who'd like to dig a bit further, we provide a lot of links in our show notes, as we always try to do, so you'll find even more information there. As you'll hear me tell Maria in a little bit, I'm infuriated by the current fixation at the State House with taking away trans people's rights. Aside from the most important fact, namely that trans folks deserve respect and support, it just blows my mind that Ohioans would be okay with their legislators using their limited time when there are dozens of pressing issues in the state that they could be focusing on and should be focusing on, but they're putting up barriers to keep trans folks, especially kids, from receiving gender-affirming care, not to mention playing ball or allowing landlords to discriminate because of somebody's gender identity. I know this reaction may sound naive, I get it, but I think that it's important to not lose sight of the big picture here. Obviously, these people are not doing their jobs. And to connect the dots a bit, I'll remind you that in our episode a few weeks ago with David Pepper, we learned a bit about how Ohio legislators get away with this dereliction of duty. It's important to keep in mind that these pieces all fit together. I want to tell you as well that our focus on LGBTQ issues here in Ohio is just beginning with this episode, as in our next episode, I'm going to be talking with Jim Obergefell about his campaign for state representative in the Sandusky area. Since Jim is, as you likely know, an icon of gay rights whose advocacy efforts led to marriage equality in the U.S., we of course build in that episode on much of what you're going to be hearing us talk about today. I really hope you won't miss that episode, so now is a good time to subscribe to the show, check out our website, and consider becoming a Patreon for just a few bucks a month. And finally, since our partner WCBE is starting a pledge drive this week, I'd like to ask you to consider throwing a few bucks their way as well. You'll hear a spot for WCBE later in this episode. Please consider doing it. It's really important. Okay, and now to my conversation with Maria Bruno, Public Policy Director at Equality Ohio. So let's jump right in. There's so much to talk about. Um, and I, as I was going through all the different things that Equality Ohio does, I wasn't sure where to start. So what do you do in those moments? You start somewhere. Uh, and, and, and so I'll start here. You know, uh, 
it caught my eye uh, a, a post that was published on on your website on the Equality Ohio website that said that 2021 was the worst year for anti-LGBTQ plus legislation in recent history, and that's not a small statement considering this history, right? That's uh, so. So let's let's start, you know, with House Bill 454. You know, which will be of special interest to our listeners, I think. It, it seeks to ban gender-affirming medical care for youth. And just you know, to make sure that our listeners and everybody, we're all on the same proverbial page here, gender-affirming care refers to mental or medical health care that seeks to affirm someone's gender identity. And that's whether it's for a transgender or a cisgender person. Let's start there, Maria. Can, can you just tell me a little bit about House Bill 454 and the work you're doing and how we sh- what we should know about it? Sure. So House Bill 454, uh, we refer to it as the Trans Youth uh, Gender Affirming Medical Care Ban. I know it's a mouthful, but it, it is so specifically targeted um, that there's really no other way to summarize it quickly because um, what it does is it would ban gender affirming care for transgender youth in any capacity. And I, and I like to emphasize that that includes like mental health care, that includes counseling, that includes any conversations in which you are not explicitly um, telling them to reject a transgender identity. And so the, um, the medical community, particularly the pediatric medical community, would consider gender affirming care to be medical mes- uh, best practices. So this bill would essentially ban medical best practices and it would impact doctors, hospitals, uh, counselors, and even insurance companies. Yeah. I mean, so much for the coveted uh, patient physician relationship or, you know, the the sanctity of, of the, the conversations we might have with, with healthcare professionals. So let's get into that a little bit more. You, you kind of alluded to this. Uh, 454, as written, states that no nurse, counselor, teacher, principal, or other official or staff at a public or private school, public or private school, shall withhold from a minor's parent or legal guardian information related to the minor's perception that his or her gender is inconsistent with his or her sex. We're going to be linking to these in the show notes too. There's a lot of details in these bills and we, we do want people to read them. So what is the, 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 the tangible sort of goal of these provisions? I mean, it seems, as you noted, that it's literally getting in the middle. The American Academy of Pediatrics, as you noted, I mean, is pretty clear on this. Is this just a, a, a so-called interference bill that gets in the way of, of the provision of medical care? Or are the people pushing 454 trying to um, you know, conjure or, or evoke medical argument themselves? Do they think they're being Hippocratic, in other words? Are they doing no harm? I believe that many are genuine in their belief that trans-affirming medical care in their mind is akin to child abuse. Now, I want to keep in mind what would be not gender-affirming care, and that's conversion therapy. And conversion therapy attempts to talk people out of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And that practice actually has been known to increase young people's uh, suicidal ideations and has some irreparable psychological damage that it causes. And so I, I point that out to say that while they might have convinced themselves that they are trying to prevent child abuse, in fact, what they're asking us to do is to take the route that, that has 
adverse results for young people against the medically preferred best practice treatment. Yeah. And as we know, I mean, good intentions uh, only take you so far. This seems like a lack of information on the one hand, but do you find that people who are supporting 454 are open to the conversation to learn? Because that would seem to be the only way to push back here. You know, I hope they are. We have certainly attempted to reach out to them to explain some of the nuances of why this bill would be harmful. We also know that children's hospitals are doing the same. Um, So we do have uh, medical professionals who are reaching out to these sponsors to correct them. Um, And so I think at some point, regardless of how genuine your belief might be, you're disregarding science and evidence that doesn't fit your narrative. And I think that that is what we are seeing a lot of right now. My, I will say, though, I think there are a lot more people in the category that you mentioned where they just don't know the specifics and it sounds a little scary and their friends told them that this is, you know, bad and That is the extent of what they know. For those folks, I do think there is a really strong desire to learn more. And we have gone out of our way to um, give them more context. I mean, I'll I'll admit before I had the the role that I have now, I had to do some research. You have to, you know, it's, it's in the weeds, medical care. It would be weird if everyone did know that off the top of their head. But our hope is that once they are given that knowledge, they don't just choose to reject science and medicine. This is not the first episode, as you might guess, that we've done on rejecting or ignoring science and evidence in the last two years. This is just another manifestation of that. But, you know, separating out the, those who have, um, you know, who are willing to do the work, who are genuinely curious and want to learn, uh, even especially if it's something they've never encountered before. I think one of the most powerful pieces of this that I've seen within the transgender healthcare space are parents who knew nothing about any of this, but they, they, they love their kids and they need to learn to keep their kids safe. So we've seen, I've seen a lot of transformation there. I mean, is that, is that a, a piece of how you approach this conversation too? just starting from those loving relationships, even if it's in a place of misinformation or lack of information? Absolutely. Parents are um, hugely passionate about this issue. The folk, the parents of trans children in Ohio have been very vocal about um, stating their opposition to HB 454 and like measures. Um, and the thing is, people can believe us or not, but LGBTQ people are in every single community, and that is conservative communities too. So we do know of some Uh, more conservative-minded individuals who have personal familial experience with um, having transgender people within their family, and they do have a lot more open mind, and they'll be the first to admit they're doing a lot of learning, but I think that is something that's a little bit more unique to our set of issues that we focus on, is um, more and more people have their own personal experience to pull from. And so our hope is that people can approach those moments where they're, you know, interacting with something that is newer with an open mind, with curiosity and with some empathy to, uh, you know, the person that they are speaking to. You know, one place I've seen this learning, uh, as you may know, I'm a medical educator and is with um, my colleagues. And, and there's certainly a generational 
um, divide uh, and a need for relearning, professional development, whatever you want to call it, continuing education for, you know, some older generations of physicians and other clinicians for whom, you know, who, who didn't learn any of this. But I will say we are doing more and more and more with our students. So we're hoping that there's this next generation of physicians you know, who will be well-versed in this and, and able to, to, to do, bring the kind of care to their patients that they need. But I do want to just ask you, you know, I, and I know you're not a clinician, you have a legal background and you're, you know, you're an advocate in your work today, but what about these objections that you hear from some legislators? Uh, and, and also I hear this from medical professionals, you know, you take as a tenant and I love it. Equality Ohio takes as a basic tenant that you, trust LGBTQ plus people to know what they need, you know, which is powerful. We hear this in other spaces like reproductive health. But what do you say to critics who say that, you know, some forms of gender affirming care, just they may have long-term consequences that we don't yet fully understand. There's not enough research. And uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, I think you're probably going to mention, I'd love to know more about that, you know, says like, this is best practices, but things like, you know, the irreversibility of hormone therapy or, you know, uh, those who may experience some regret get kind of pulled out in these conversations to say, we have to be really careful here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you make the parallel with uh, abortion access and reproductive rights, because there is a lot of ideological overlap in the mindset that you personally, your personal views get to, um, override medical advice or, um, you know, just the basic care of a patient. So um, I think what there's a few points I want to make. The first is we've seen our opponents really focus on quote unquote detransitioners. Our trans advocate um, allies have uh, explained to us that retransition is actually a much more Um, accurate way to phrase this. Um, And that is folks who may or may not have, or may have started trans-affirming care and then um, decided ultimately that they are in fact the gender of their sex assigned at birth and they no longer receive trans-affirming care. And I appreciate how you framed this because this really is not an instance where we say, no, you're making the wrong choice now. Our standpoint is this is your choice to make. And gender is very fluid. Uh, That's sort of our whole point, right? There is a huge spectrum of human behavior and human needs and and folks' medical care, and it's super individualized. And so the existence of of, uh, retransitioners does not negate the experience of all the folks who do not retransition. Um, that is a very small perce- percentage of people who receive um, trans-affirming medical care. The bulk of them actually do, in fact, um, remain the gender that they receive care for. Um, and I also want to cite that many times the reason that people do do retransition is due to societal pressures, a lack of acceptance among their family, an inability to get a job, um, you know, general social isolation, those are often the reasons that we see cited. And that's not really saying, I don't feel this gender. It's saying, um, this is untenable because I am receiving such social stigmatization from my existence. Um, and so as far as just though, back to the original medical question about reversibility, 
I want to say what gender affirming care is not, and it's not giving three-year-olds a bunch of hormones. Um, that is how this has been framed uh, among our op- opposition. And the first step to trans-affirming healthcare is always the mental health services. It's meeting with a mental health professional, assessing what someone's needs are. Um, just for conceptual uh, comparison, I often think of it similar to um, an antidepressant or um, a ADHD medication. You don't always get the first medication right, right? Like everyone who has, um, you know, taken medications in that nature has often tried more than one because the first one didn't work how they needed it to work. And so this is very similar in that. But puberty blockers, the second you stop taking them, you're back to wherever you were going to be. This is that actually what that does is allow us to delay um, the onset of puberty so that folks have more space to decide. And that is actually the total opposite of hormone replacement therapy which is what you take once you are affirmatively, um, you know, taking hormones. But that is a different and unique step from hormone blockers. And we often hear those talked about interchangeably, but they are specifically different things. Last thing I want to mention, and this is, I know, one of my longer answers. The last thing I want to mention is um, that... We know that the existence of trans youth does not go away if they stop getting care. And in fact, it makes it more likely that they will take, um, take care through finding their own medication, doing their own research, you know, doing the classic Google search because they can't get the medical care they need. And that's going to lead to way less consistent, way less scientifically typically based treatment for folks. So this is back again, back to the abortion comparison, you know, that we talk about the back alley abortions that are bound to happen. Similarly, trans youth will seek out this care and it's best that we can incorporate this into a safe, um, holistic setting where they can receive that. No, th- thank you for that. And, and, and um, you know, complex questions require long answers. Okay, we'll be right back. It's remarkable to think that WCBE has been here since 1956. Hi, this is Mike Foley. Founder John Sittig, one of the visionaries in the industry, made sure 90.5 was a part of a new network in the early 1970s, National Public Radio. Since that time, WCBE has evolved to provide listeners with a variety of programming, including a commitment to local. Your donation online at wcbe.org, this fund drive, sends a message that all the connections you make through WCBE matter. That 90.5's news, music, programs, and podcasts matter and make a difference in your life. That donation preserves a valuable piece of Columbus culture and a unique voice in central Ohio. Keep WCBE your community connection by making a donation now at wcbe.org. So let's talk a little bit about House Bill 61 and Senate Bill 132. And I I hate giving listeners these numbers of these bills because they don't stick at all. But again, we'll be linking to these in the show notes. These are bills that would, and we've heard this in the news, right? If you're you're paying attention, would ban transgender athletes from competing on teams in alignment with their gender identity. And there's a lot of different issues to this, right? There are 
Title IX issues, right? There are various civil rights um, intersections here we could talk about. And this is in both high school and college sports. So can you tell us a little bit about this issue, where where we are with this issue in the state? And also, I know that you have this exciting campaign coming on, the Ohio Can Play campaign, which would be nice to be able to let listeners know about as well. Yeah, so we have heard a lot about transgender athletes in recent months from some uh, bad faith right wing outlets that are trying to equate uh, transgender individuals to being men that are, you know, essentially men in dresses is how they would like us to think of uh, those transgender individuals. And that could not be further from the truth. I will speak specifically to Ohio for a second to say that this bill would cover all sports, not just high school and and college. And so while we think of it in the context of of college athletics, where it's a high level of competition, uh, this will actually manifest in middle school when people are, you know, when the girls are still a foot taller than the boys. um, And when, you know, all everyone's uh, development is, you know, generally more prepubescent in timeline. Um, And this bill is so expansive because it covers all of those people. So this goes far beyond any considerations about competitive advantage. So I do like to flag that explicitly, that the whole, is it fair, is a very important conversation to start with what this bill actually says with, is it fair to kick you know, seventh graders off of the team that aligns with their gender identity, because that's what you're asking us to do. Um, As far as the actual trans, uh, the sort of just more of a sciencey technical piece of this. In Ohio, we do actually have regulations for transgender participation. We only have a handful here in the state, and um, that guidance requires doctors um, doctors' confirmation that this person does in fact uh, identify as that gender and uh, hormone treatment. Um, and so, there is already a process in place to ensure that someone doesn't wake up tomorrow and says, I think I'll play on the girls team now. That's not, that's not a thing that can happen within Ohio. And so this bill is really a red herring because it attempts to invent a problem that does not exist in order to solve it when really they want to exclude transgender youth. Um, Our project is Ohio can play. And that is asking folks, uh, allies, transgender youth, anyone who supports transgender participation in sports can make a video up to a minute long explaining why they think Ohio can play. Uh, And that can be a story about how youth sports were valuable to you as an individual. It could be why youth sports are just important to be accessible. A couple, you know, examples, my uh, Catherine Poe, our policy organizer, did uh, a video about how they are absolutely terrible at soccer. But playing youth sports allowed them to figure that out and it allowed them to learn how to lose and it allowed them to play with their friends. And, you know, my my video was in third grade. I was about a foot taller than all of the boys in my class. And I was a great basketball player, you know. And so just bringing it back to what this is about with youth sports through videos, testimonials, stories and general um, voices of support. So we are asking everyone for the next few months to consider making us a minute long video and sending it our way in support of transgender youth athletes. And I just have to say, you know, to me, the idea that this is about competitive advantage is so transparently fake. And and, and these are one of those moments where I realize, you know, there, there's this issue of a bunch of folks, and I know I'm being a bit more probably blunt or crude than maybe I should be on this, but, you know, this what's their deal? You know, I mean, they, they, they I mean, in a way, I hope that this issue 
of trans health, of trans inclusion, of, you know, is just maybe, maybe, maybe hopefully it's, it's new enough that it will, you know, it'll take a little time and we hope that that time heals in a way. But wow, these folks are dug in deep, not only, you know, to begin with, but they also have these arguments that make it sound like they're talking about something other than what they're really talking about, which is they're talking about exclusion. Right. But they don't always frame it in those terms because they know better than that politically. Yeah. Right? When I hear these these arguments like, you know, and Ohio's a big sports state. But are they really talking about competitive advantage? Or are they talking about their own issues in terms of gender inclusivity and fluidity and all of that? I would separate people into buckets. The first bucket is someone who might be totally apolitical and here's a headline and that's about the extent of what they know. I've had conversations with people that they say, yeah, I mean, I don't know. it. The, the extent of what they know and what they think they know is that they are quote unquote uh, people, you know, I would say sex assigned at birth, someone else might say something else, but there are boys playing girls sports. And that is unfair. And that is the beginning and the end of what they understand this issue to be. Um, And so obviously, they do actually have genuine inquiries about the competitive advantage. And I think, um, like I said, I think that is sincere. But it the thing is, is the proponents of this bill do know better, and they are relying on someone else's ignorance about this topic to make their point. And that's exactly what you're saying. And the people who are pushing this narrative, um, they aren't, like you said, this is not about competitive advantage. This is not about protecting women's sports. If it was protecting women's sports, we would have some conversations about funding and conversations about access and perhaps, you know, the treatment by uh, educational institutions altogether. But that's not the conversation we're having. We're having the conversation about transgender participation. Um, And it really does stem from an ideology that says trans people are not real. They are people who are confused that will change their mind. Um, and this is all a, an aberration that a whole community of people for hundreds of years has, uh, you know, imagined together. Um, but nonetheless, their theory is that transgender people are not in fact the gender that aligns with their gender identity. And so the rest is silly to them. Um, and yeah. so that is where that educational knowledge and that gap about both the science and also the socialization of really even what gender is as a concept. You know, the ignorance of those topics is um, very much why the proponents phrase the talking points the way that they do. So you mentioned the kind of glass half emptiness of this sometimes, and we do need to note when there are victories and when there's progress. And sometimes progress, especially in a state like Ohio, can be so slow that we might miss it. Uh, you know, Equality Ohio spends a lot of time, as you need to and as you should, you know, running interference and pushing back on bad policy. And there's a lot of bad policy. There's a lot of attacks You know, constantly. You must all be exhausted. And thank you for your work, by the way, in case I didn't say it. You, you've also got a campaign to support the Ohio Fairness Act, um, and this moves us beyond some of the trans-specific issues to thinking about sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, um, and discrimination uh, more generally for LGBTQ plus folks. Uh, 
Many listeners may not know that in most parts of Ohio or many parts of Ohio, it's still legal to discriminate against LGBTQ plus folks in various ways. And I know, again, this is going to be another one of those moments where it's going to be very specific locally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know that housing discrimination is a really big problem. That's something that I've thought about. I know you have a history in, in this area as well, working with uh, the Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. Can you give our listeners a sense of what kind of stakes are there for just LGBTQ plus discrimination in our state? Like what are some other examples of where we start to see this uh, or where we need to address these or push back? Yeah. So you mentioned that this is a patchwork situation in Ohio, and that's the truth. Ohio does not have those statewide non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people. Many localities have passed their own local ordinances that do exactly that. Um, We have worked with many of those localities to do that because we know, you know, we're working on the statewide fix. And also while while we work towards that, are um, helping communities one by one, at least make that, um, you know, provide that safeguard within their own communities. So um, that continues. I think we are up to 35 localities now have non-discrimination protections. But the result of that is if you are an LGBTQ person, your rights, you know, your legal protections vary if you just go down the highway, right? It, right? Depending on which county you end up in depends on whether you have rights. And that's not exactly how we would like the system to be set up. And I think oftentimes people who are less involved in this work assume this is already law. And, and I think that honestly, one of our bigger hurdles is reminding people that it is not yet law to, um, you know, explicitly not discriminate against LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. And we do see stories. We we have social media where people will reach out. We have a legal clinic where people reach out. And we hear stories every single day of people being discriminated against for exactly the reasons we talked about. And, you know, you talked about the uh, local engagement that we've seen pick up uh, on the anti-LGBTQ front. That manifests itself into more discrimination. Um, every, you know, when these communities start having this hostile conversation, so, you know, oftentimes the folks who maybe wouldn't have been empowered to turn someone away suddenly are. And we hear stories of it all the time in different capacities. It is not always, I'm not doing this because I you're gay. Sometimes it's, I'm not answering the phone. Sometimes it's, I'm giving you bad information. Uh, you know, we know that this same as sexism and racism shows up in really insidious sort of quiet ways, but we do know for a fact that it exists. I mean, just as an a silly example of how this has manifested itself in a more social context. We've had two high schools that canceled a play specifically because one of the characters was alluded to being gay. Mm-hmm. And that was enough to not make the whole play, uh, you know, school appropriate. And we had another school that banned rainbows. I'm not kidding. They banned rainbows in <laughs> elementary school. I mean, that is like, are you banning Lisa Frank? Like what? are you talking about? And so we are just seeing silly manifestations of bigotry. So we know for a fact that the more serious, um, the more harmful ones are definitely also happening. Yeah. When you're banning rainbows, I mean, you've entered a whole other world of ridiculousness (laughs) (laughs) and and, and insecurity, frankly, right? I mean, for, to take something beautiful like a rainbow and to see it as a political object of, uh, the thre- threatening society. I had a colleague who goes, are they banning other weather, weather patterns or just this one? <laughs> like, 
Oh, God. You know, and I think in Ohio here, we've talked about it on the show a little bit, just this this weaponization of home rule or this selective use of, you know, oh, okay, well, there are some, we're all about local, local decision-making, local decision-making. The thing about the Ohio Fairness Act is that it would hopefully preempt some nonsense that's happening on the local level and try to, I mean, states need to stand for something together, right? And you would think that something like this would be a thing we could all get down with. Aside from the fact that the Ohio Fairness Act probably needs a few more votes before it can become uh, a viable law, given our the, the, the makeup of the legislature, I would be worried that they would pass the opposite, which is banning or prohibiting local municipalities from providing these anti-discrimination protections. I mean, is, is, is that a concern at all or would that just be too far afield? Look, we're in Ohio and I never like to say never. I will not, you'll never hear me say, oh, that's so off the wall. You know, they could never do that because I'm constantly uh, reminded as to how, how far some folks at the legislature are willing to go. But I will say, this isn't just us puffing our chests out when we say we really do have bipartisan support. Um, like I mentioned, LGBTQ people are in, in every single community. We have, we have allies that would surprise people who have LGBTQ people in their family or in their personal networks. That is something that we hold really close to our heart. We would never, ever violate anyone's confidence, but we know that there are people who, uh, might disagree with us on every single other social issue and are on our team on LGBTQ rights. And at a minimum, I think, you know, I think the reason marriage equality was one of the first things, you know, um, to move is because it does still develop, you know, it still encompasses those conservative, holistic marriage as a value, right? Um, and similarly, I think the fact that a lack of LGBTQ protections would just as much impact the gay white man as the black trans woman, yeah. um, you know, that makes it a less palatable. Th That's why they have this anti-trans legislation because they get to have that conversation as, as deeply as they want and not worry about offending their, um, you know, gay white friend. Right. So that really is, they are trying very hard to split our community strategically to take away some of our political power. And of course, there was a really notable thing here in Ohio, I mean, on the federal level, that Senator Portman supported marriage equality, in part because his son was publicly out and, and talked about it and give credit where credit's due. But it shouldn't take you having an immediate family member to develop the empathy for other human beings. And I think that's the frustration that you, you get on a lot of these issues. Totally. Yeah, it's the, I have a daughter now, so I understand that women are people. It's sort of the same thing where it's right. like, okay, I would have thought you would have gotten that before then. Um, and Portman, I do want to mention, since, since you brought him up, we hope that he will be a vote in our favor for the Equality Act, which is the federal version of Ohio Fairness Act. Um, and he hasn't yet said that he will support that. I just want to note that. So if you are looking for someone to bother, uh, you can call Senator Portman's office. We have been constantly engaging them. We are also working on, you know, a variety of op-eds and other campaign stuff to put the pressure on him to be a yes vote on that on that bill. And Senator Portman, we've uh, invited you on the show. Open invitation. You can come on and explain your support for the Equality Act. So we'd love to do that. Yes. 
I do have to ask one follow-up on this, just kind of wrapping up this discussion of this particular bill, which is that I noted in looking at it that it, it also specifically upholds existing religious exemptions under Ohio civil rights law. Is that a backdoor, uh, you know, get out of jail free card on this? Or is that just something that the law forces us to do in this mo- in this case? It depends how it's written, first of all. So religious exemptions are not all created equal. I will say that. Um, the language with which they, you know, provide that carve out is fairly important. And I think the, the main overarching thing is if there is a church that functions in some more commercial, more public accommodation way. An example might be a a religiously affiliated um, homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. That is, once you are in the realm of providing a public service, you no longer have that religious right to turn people away to access to that service. Now, unlike that, you have scenarios in which, you know, they have... um, a housing complex for priests who they have to be Christian, they have to be men, you know, they have to be ordained or whatever. Um, When you're in the category of it really is within the religion um, and it is something that is directly correlated to a religious service or a religious tradition, that is very different from that public accommodation where you happen to have a religious affiliation. And so the religious um, exemptions are meant to cover that situation where it really is a religious ritual and not cover the scenario in which you are providing a public service and just happen to be a religious entity doing that. That's really important. Really, really important, especially given uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, shelters as an example. But we can also we can talk about many of these services uh, and keep in mind that LGBTQ plus folks are, are disproportionately unhoused. Right. right, disproportionately experience some of these, um, you know, social challenges like food insecurity and things like that. So, uh, if, yeah, thanks for explaining that. I just I wanted to to understand it a little bit better. And it sounds like it's it's narrow, most likely, but also something to watch. Yeah, if we have a say in how it is written, we will carve it out the way that I just mentioned. When it is a an exemption written by someone who is either less familiar with religious exemptions generally or who has a more ambitious idea of how deep the carve-out should go, people might try to put that blanket um, language in, which would actually, you know, exempt religious institutions from non-discrimination sort of wholesale. Um, so we work really hard to make sure that th- that's not what the language says uh, when there are religious exemptions, but we have seen those. So I don't want to imply that they don't exist. They, they do exist and we work hard to get rid of them. <laughs> sure, sure. My final question, just I, I wanted, you know, we've talked about a lot of bills and I'm going to be linking to them in the show notes. We have our homework assignment, which is call Senator <laughs> Portman and ask him about the Equality Act. Like, that's all really good. Can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, anything else about the organization you'd like folks to know and also ways in which people can get involved um, and, of course, support your work in various mm-hmm. ways? Yes, absolutely. So uh, one thing that has... You say no. I've never had a guest say no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. No, just, uh, so first, we have a legal clinic. I do want to mention that we serve LGBTQ individuals who are below 300% the poverty line when they have um, an issue. It's not in all areas of the law, but um, many and many of the family law issues that we find our community is dealing with frequently, particularly. So if you have an issue like that, please contact our legal clinic and we can take you through the intake process. We also have a great field team that organizes faith communities, business communities, um, and also just local organizers. Those are the folks who are 
um, helping with the prides. They are um, building relationships so that we can pursue some of these local non-discrimination ordinances. Um, we have a whole whole amazing field team and they are doing advocacy nights. Uh, I believe it is... Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up which week it is, but they have advocacy nights every month that you can show up and you can do an action activity with them for a few hours um, and just you know get back to the community that way. Uh, we have an election coming up, so going to vote is really important, regardless of your political affiliation. By the way, um, but then we also have our state house. We have state, federal, and local advocacy that we are always working on, and so folks can be involved by engaging their own lawmaker, um, contacting us, and we can get them more involved in state house work, and also just working on that community education piece. We've mentioned a lot of times that uh, even on this call that that gap in knowledge is really something that our opposition tries to exploit all the time. And so uh, if you are knowledgeable or you are anxious to be more knowledgeable, I encourage you to um, provide that resource for the people around you within your community, because that really is how we build um, this political power too. Great. Well, Maria, it was a delight talking and uh, I look forward to more conversations in the future. This, this was really a, a great first conversation and thanks for the work you do and to everybody at Equality Ohio. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for putting this together. My many thanks to Maria for joining us on the show. As I've noted, you'll learn a lot more about the state of anti-LGBTQ legislation here in Ohio in our show notes, as well as the great work Equality Ohio is doing to push back while doing what they can to support Ohio's LGBTQ community. You can find that at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org under the podcast experience tab. Special thanks to MD Spicer Seitz, Communications Director at Equality Ohio, for helping us to set this interview up. And thanks as well to Catherine Poe, friend of the show who now works at Equality Ohio. Catherine helped us to connect with MD and Maria. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. We received editorial and production support from Trish Mayhorn. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio, check out our social media, as well as an archive of past episodes, please visit the show's website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon, so make sure you're subscribed. And please, if you can, give us a few stars while you're listening. You can do that right now. Thanks for listening and be well.